Genesis 23. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. There Abraham arose up, rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land, and said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns, is at the end of his field for the full price. Let him give it to me for in your presence as a property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites and all who went in at the gate of his city. No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land and said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will hear me, I give the price of the field. Accept it for me that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, my Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah was to the east, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field. Throughout the, its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before who, all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as a property for a burying place by the Hittites. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we approach this passage of Scripture, we see things and, and customs that, that are strange to us. But Lord, I pray that through the power of your Spirit, Lord, that you would help us to hear the enduring truth that is presented herein. Lord, I pray that you would work in our hearts and, and help us, Lord, to see that the confidence that Abraham had in you and your faithful promises is also for us. Lord, that we can have similar confidence we can have the same confidence because we believe in the same God. And I pray this in Jesus' name, our Lord and Savior. Amen. On Christmas Day 2008, I was staying in a kibbutz in Bethlehem. And if you, you're probably aware that Bethlehem is situated on the west bank of Palestine, controlled territory um, in the Palestinian Authority. And when I was there, I befriended a young Muslim man. And he spoke very little English, and I spoke no Arabic, but he offered to take me to Hebron. And we, so we went, got on the bus, he and I and, and a few others, and uh, we, we traveled the, the 20 kilometers um, by city bus. And even though Hebron was considered to be the most troubled city in Palestine, I was, I was eager to, 
to see this place and eager to explore, so I uh, was happy to go. When we arrived in Hebron, it looked like a war zone, surrounded by high concrete walls topped with razor wire and guard posts armed with guards armed with machine guns who were guarding the Israeli settlement above. We walked through a, a complex of, of Muslim apartments, and, and including some that were burned out that had apparently belonged to terrorists that, um, that uh, the, the, the Israeli security forces had, had destroyed. And I had no idea where I was going as we, we traveled down through a narrow alleyway that was lined with, with street vendors and there was chain link fence above us with, with rocks and, and debris that had been thrown down from above. We came to a, a metal detector, another guard post with a metal detector. And I walked through the guard post, still really not knowing where I was going. Perhaps this was foolish. But as we, as we came through the checkpoint, I was told to remove my shoes as we were about to enter into a mosque. And as I walked into the mosque and the, the building with its, its ornate woodwork and, and tile work and, and a floor that was covered with, with wall-to-wall prayer rugs, I, I came around a corner to see a, a large cenotaph that was embroidered, it was green silk and, and with embroidery all over it. And the, and the plaque was in Arabic, but my guide told me the name of the inscription, Sarah. This was Sarah's grave marker. You can imagine my surprise as I realized that I was in the Al-Ibrahimi Mosque. And so I came then into a large open area and there were, there were more cenotaphs there. Isaac, Rebecca, Jacob, Leah. Only Rebecca's remains weren't there. Then a little further in, through bars and bulletproof glass, I saw Abraham's cenotaph. And as I peered through the glass, I could see that, that on the other side there was a synagogue with more bars and more bulletproof glass, and there were Jews praying on the other side of the bulletproof glass. This was, it was a synagogue. So Muslims and Jews shared this, this holy site, but not without significant bloodshed. Next to the Temple Mount, this site is considered by Jews and Muslims to be the most sacred site in all of Israel. For, 17, sorry, for 714 years, Jews were forbidden to, by law from entering this site because of the mosque that was now there. And now they're forbidden once again. In 1967, just after the, the end of the Six-Day War, when the, the land was recaptured by Israeli forces, um, the Israeli defense minister, uh, Moshe Dayan, went with a, a young girl, 12-year-old girl, named, uh, named Michal. And, and the defense minister actually lowered Michal down into a hole in the ground in the, in the middle of this mosque. And she went into a darkened room, but the room was empty, apart from some coins and candles and, and some written prayer notes that had been put there. At the end, she found a wall, and on the wall was a large stone. And being a little girl, she was unable to physically move the wall. And so then she came out and drew, a little, drew some, some maps and pictures of, of what she had found. But the site remained secret because of security reasons. Until 1981, 14 years later, uh, Hebron's spokesman, Noam Arnon, led a small group into the mosque in the middle of the night. And, and while... There was, there was a celebration going on that was quite loud. 
he had brought tools and he pried up the stone that was now covering the little hole. And he and his party descended down the stairs into the darkness. And just with a flashlight to guide them, they found the circular room that, that Michal had entered 14 years earlier, still, still empty. But their hearts were, were, pounded, were pounding with excitement as they, as they then found the stone and noticed that there was air coming through the, the gaps in the stone. And so they, they pried open those stones and descended further still. As they crawled through the narrow opening, it was too, too tall for them, or too short rather, for them to stand up. They, they, they crawled until the cave widened and they discovered a second cave. This one was filled with dust. And there they made a spectacular discovery. Remnants of pottery from the first temple era, so from the days of Solomon. But that's not all they discovered. They realized that they were among human bones. Were these the bones of the patriarchs? The photos and the description of the site correspond with the testimony of monks and travelers that had, had gone to the area through the, the days of the Crusades. This was the first time that somebody had set foot in that room for over 700 years. Ancient peoples cherished ancestral burial ground. The, the, to be buried in the family gravesite meant honor and continuity with the family line. And throughout most of Western history, it was, it was common for families to purchase plots in cemeteries. Now most people get cremated. Now, I don't prefer cremation. Personally, I, I'd rather be buried at sea. Just put some rocks in my pockets and, and throw me overboard. Um, if you'd like to hear more about that, I'd be happy to talk with you about that later. But death is a reality that we all must face. And one of my most important duties as a pastor is to help to prepare you for death. If the Lord tarries, death will come. And it may come sooner than you think. It may come sooner than you think for your loved ones. And it may come sooner than you think for you. Are you prepared? Are you prepared for your own death? Are you prepared for the deaths of your loved ones? I'd say that second question is, is probably even more challenging for most of us. For, and so, so how do we prepare for the deaths of our loved ones? And, and especially how do we prepare for, for the deaths of believing loved ones? How do we prepare for, for the deaths of, of unbelieving loved ones? The answer is still the same. We, we trust in God and in His promises. So death is is certainly a major theme of this passage, but death, as we will see, is also not the most important theme. Genesis 23 doesn't primarily look backwards, but looks forwards, forwards to the promises of God. Genesis 23 is another transitional passage that, that is moving from Abraham and Sarah to now Isaac and Rebekah, and then further from there. And the three main sections in this passage, in verses 1 and 2, Sarah dies and Abraham grieves. In verses 3 to 18, Abraham purchases the Machpelah cave. In verses 19 to 20, Abraham buries Sarah. So first of all, in, in verses 1 and 2, we see that, we see that God, um, 
we see that God's word says that Sarah died at the age of 127. 127 years Sarah lived. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died. Again and again and again in this passage, we see reference to Sarah's death repeated. Not only in verse 2, but also verse 3. Abraham rose up before his dead. Verse 4, that I may bury my dead. Verse 6, bury your dead and burying your dead. Verse 11, bury your dead. Verse 13, that I may bury my dead there. Verse 15, bury your dead. And then finally in verse 19, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife. Clearly, the death of Sarah is central to the passage. And again, death is a, is a theme here, not only this passage, but, but really all of Genesis. Death entered the world through Adam's sin. Then we find, we find the death of, of Abel in Genesis 4. In Genesis 5, from Adam to Noah, the refrain is, and he died. In the flood account of Genesis 6 to 9, everybody dies except for nine people. Sarah lived to be 127. That is, is certainly a long life. Sarah is the only woman whose age at death is recorded in the scriptures. We need to understand that Sarah is really one of the most important women in the Bible. Israel is told to look to Sarah in Isaiah 51, verses 1 and 2. Listen to me, you, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord, look to the rock from which you are hewn, and from the quarry from which you were dug, look to Abraham your father and to Sarah who bore you. For he it was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. Ladies, you are to look to Sarah in 1 Peter 3 verses 1 to 6, where she is held up as an example of obedience to her husband. She is presented as an example also not just of, of obedience, but as an example of faith. In Hebrews 11, 11. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered himself faithful who had promised. So, so men, you too are to look to Sarah's example as she looked to the Lord in faith. But Sarah wasn't just an example of faith. She wasn't just an example of obedience. She wasn't just the matriarch of the Jewish people. She was also a wife and a mother. She was Isaac's mother. She was Abraham's wife. These, these were real people struggling with real death. Sarah wasn't mentioned in the last chapter, and Isaac isn't mentioned here. Abraham is mentioned alone. Abraham, we're told in, in verse 2, went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. A again, Abraham is not a just a character in a story. Abraham was a real husband grieving for his wife. Some of you will remember Carnes and Vi White. Carnes died a few years ago at the age of 99. He and his wife, Vi, were, were, they were married for over 70 years. Lori and, and Anita were, were married for almost 65 years. Anita died just, just three weeks short of their, their 65th anniversary. And if you talk to Lori about this, you, you'll, you'll hear that he still grieves Anita greatly. Now, Jane and I got married when, when I was 43. We're not going to make it to 70 years or 60 years or probably not even to 50 years of marriage. 
Again, as, as I said to the kids, we, we don't know how long Abraham and Sarah were, were married, but it was probably over a hundred years. Now, what would it be like to be married to somebody for a hundred years? For an unbeliever, needless to say, it would be pretty unpleasant. Because for someone who does not have the work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts, they're, they're just going to get harder and harder and harder in their sin as time goes on. But for a believer, for a believer, when, when you're both filled with the Holy Spirit, both being sanctified and being, being transformed into the image of Christ, that when, when, when this is true of your marriage, that then you're, you will grow and, and you're you will love more and more being married to your wife as time goes on. Now, I, w I would love to be married to, to Jane for that long because, because, praise God, we're both being sanctified now. We're, we're both growing in Christ-likeness. Yes, we're sinners, and yes, we'll always be sinners until the return of Christ, but by God's grace, we're changing and growing. And there's a part of me that, that grieves the fact that, that one day I'm going to say goodbye to Jane. I'm going to say goodbye to Jane either because, because she's going to glory or, or I'm going to glory, whichever one of us precedes the other. Now, don't get hung up on this, but it's something that, that is just kind of there in the, in the back of my mind. But here, as we, we look at Abraham and in Genesis 23, it's safe to say that his heart was broken. His heart was broken. That the two words that are used here, mourn and weep, commonly describe grief over, over death or, or over huge disasters. How is it that you, you bear with the death of a loved one? How, how do you survive that? How do you not get crushed under the grief of, of the death of a loved one. As I said earlier, it's by, by trusting in God's promises and by looking forwards. And we'll see that that is exactly what Abraham does. With Genesis 23, people are beginning to die without having received the promises of God. Last chapter, we witnessed Isaac's potential death. In this chapter, we see Sarah's actual death. So here with the death of Sarah, you're meant to wonder what is going to happen with the promises of God. Yes, Isaac was born. Yes, Sarah was blessed to see him to be able to grow into adulthood. And yes, his, uh, Isaac's wife's name was, was hinted at, but, but there's not even a hint yet about, about possession of the land. They had been granted access to the well in Beersheba, but, but they, they did not have full land title, full legal land title yet in the promised land. But Sarah's age at death, as we talked about, is not nearly as important as her place of death. Sarah died at Kiriath Arba. Now, Kiriath Arba, we're told in Joshua 14, 15, refers to, the, the name Arba refers to the greatest of the Anakim giants who had in, once inhabited the land. And Joshua 21, 11 tells us that, that after the taking of the promised land, that, that Kiriath Arba is going to become the, the territory of, of the descendants of, of the priest, Aaron. Now, Kiriath Arba was the name of the city during Abraham's time, but Moses gives us the new name, Hebron. 
The name Hebron is repeated again in verse 19. Hebron is in the land of Canaan. Abraham and his family had traveled from Beersheba back to Hebron where he had sojourned earlier and had built an altar to the Lord in chapter 13 where the Lord had appeared to him in chapter 18 to tell him that he would have a son through Sarah. This place is very important. God's people grieve death. Abraham grieved death. It is natural to grieve death. Death is an enemy. We will all experience death, whether it's the death of a loved one or our own death. Death is a part of life. But don't let anyone tell you that death is natural. Death is not natural. Death is an enemy. Death is, yes, death is a part of life, but death is only a part of life in this fallen world. And so all of this focus here on death in this chapter at the beginning here makes us wonder about the fulfillment of God's promises. But here, even in the death of Abraham's beloved Sarah, we see the beginning of the fulfillment of God's promises. Yes, God's people grieve death, but as we'll see, not even death can hinder the fulfillment of God's promises. Now, usually when a death is described in, in Scripture, the burial is reported immediately after that. But first, there's some important business to take care of. Abraham is, is presented here as in mourning, but he's not being overcome by grief. He's not in despair. Why not? Sarah's death is the occasion for another demonstration of Abraham's faith. Sarah's death provides yet another opportunity for Abraham to show his faith in God's promises, to prove that God is faithful. So now he sets out to buy a plot of land in Canaan, showing that, the trust, that he trusted that God would one day give his descendants the land. So in verses 3 to 18, we see how Abraham purchases the Machpelah cave. Verses 3 and 4. And Abraham rose up from before, from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. So see this, this name that's come up here, the Hittites. You might be wondering, well, well, who are the Hittites? The Hittites are the sons of Heth. Genesis 10.15 tells us that they are the descendants of Canaan, Noah's son, Noah's cursed son. Now when we think about, about what was happening in that culture, it, was, it would have been customary for, for Abraham at the death of his wife to return to his homeland to bury her, to return to Haran, his ancestral home. But he doesn't because Abraham is looking forwards. His future is here in in Canaan, not back in Haran. And so here as Abraham, as Abraham speaks to these Hittites, he describes himself as a sojourner and a foreigner. Now God has promised him this land, yet, yet he presents himself as a, as a resident alien, kind of like a, a landed immigrant in our country. And according to the laws of the land, he had very limited rights. But Abraham's eyes are on God's promises. Abraham is looking forwards. 
So he asked the Hittites to sell him land for a place to bury his wife. And from the context here, the, the word that, that's translated um, give is, is actually sell. He's asking, to sell, sell, he's asking him to sell him the land. Again, he's moving forwards. He has, he has no land of his own, but by purchasing Hittite property here in Canaan, he's demonstrating his reliance on God's promises. We see something similar in Jeremiah 32, verses 6 to 15, when the, the, Lord, the Lord commands Jeremiah to purchase the land at Anathoth, which is just about three kilometers north of Jerusalem. He commands Jeremiah to purchase this land, even though the armies of Nebuchadnezzar are marching on Israel. They're about to lay siege on Jerusalem. And so by, by commanding Jeremiah to purchase this land at Anathoth, God is saying that, yes, you're going to go into captivity, but you're going to come back. That this time, this time away is temporary. So this, this land, this, this field of Anathoth becomes kind of like a seal of God's promise for Jeremiah. And this land here in, in Hebron is like a seal of God's promise to Abraham. It's, it's like a foothold, a, a token possession of the whole land. And so Abraham is seen here to be resting on God's promises. So despite Abraham's self-abasement as, as presenting himself as a, as a stranger and a, and a sojourner in the, in the land, his neighbors treat him with veneration. They respond in verse 6, Here is my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Now this could be cultural negotiation tactics, sort of buttering up him up in order to get a sweet deal. But on the face of it, they're, they're calling him Lord. Now, not, not Lord as in God, but, but, but Master. They're, they're calling him a prince of God. But either way, no matter, no matter what they really thought here, Abraham was a prince of God among them. He had been chosen by God. He had been promised by God that he would father kings. He had been promised by God that he would possess this very land. So they offer to give Abraham one of their best burial plots. Now again, some suggest that this generosity of the, of the Hittites here is self-serving, that it, they would, if they offered it as a gift, then, then somehow they'd be able to wrangle it back from him at a later date. But the Lord is at work here, and he's not going to let that happen. So previously seated, Abraham now rises and bows before them. Here and, and later on in this chapter, the only places in all of Genesis where you see Abraham bowing before the Canaanites, he's humbling himself before them. You see, the people here are repeatedly presented as witnesses to the coming transaction. And in verse 9, he names a specific individual, Ephron, the son of Zohar, Zohar, and he asks them for a specific site, the cave of Machpelah. Now, Machpelah means, means double. This was a, 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 there was a double cave that was on this site. By purchasing only the cave at the end of Ephron's field, Abraham would, would not be seen to be infringing on Ephron's land holding. And he offers Ephron to, play, to pay full price, guaranteeing the property as his own. Abraham has asked them to, to go to Ephron, but Ephron was sitting right there. He had heard the whole interaction. So now in verse 11, 
Ephron answers Abraham again before the witnesses. He says, no, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. And so again, you see the witnesses that are presented here. He's, he's offering to give, to give the cave to, to, to Abraham, but he's also offering to give him the field in which it was situated. And it seems at first to be generous. When you see what comes next, you realize that it wasn't actually generous at all. Ephron knew the strength of his position. Again, Abraham bows before the people and speaks in the hearing of the people of the land. But if you will, hear me. I give the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. And so Abraham is here countering with an offer to pay full price. Now including the whole field. And Ephron answers Abraham, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Now 400 shekels is a very large sum of money. More than 45 kilograms of silver. To, to put it in context, David paid only 50 shekels for the purchase of the threshing floor, which be, would become the temple mount. Jeremiah paid only 17 shekels for the field in Anathoth. 400 shekels is a very large sum of money. But Ephron's saying here, what's a mere 400 shekels between men like you and me? He sounds like a coffin salesman paying on the emotions of a grieving widower, trying to sell the most expensive box for his deceased wife. But again, Abraham doesn't haggle. He simply agrees to Ephron's price and weighs out the silver. And again, the Hittites are presented as witnesses. We're told that the silver met the proper standard, that this, this transaction is legal and binding. None of the descendants of Ephron can, can ever challenge Abraham's ownership or the, of the ownership of Abraham's descendants of this land of these ground, on the grounds that he had paid less than fair value. In verses 17 and 18, we, we see the legal title. Notice here the specificity. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. The price having been met, the details of the transaction are here laid out for us. The property's location, the, the parties involved, and the witnesses present. Abraham has purchased this burial plot at full price. He and his posterity now have legal rights to the land. Now this purchase goes beyond what we saw earlier in Genesis 21 with Abimelech's giving Abraham access to the well at Beersheba. But, but both events confirm the beginning of the fulfillment of the promises of the land. Abraham is, is seen here to be, again, renouncing his former country, Haran, in favor of the promised land. Abraham grieved the death of his wife, but not like those who have no hope. God's people rest on God's promises. 
So now with clear land title as a, as a down payment of, of what's to come, we, we see that the, the promised land will really points to a, a future promised land, to the heavenly promised land, even to our promised land. In, in verse, verses 19 and 20, as Abraham buries Sarah. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as a property for a burying place by the Hittites. So this, this final section, these last two verses, reinforce the major themes of the chapter. Death and faith in God's promises. So Abraham buries his wife in the cave of Machpelah in the land of Canaan that God had promised to him and to his descendants. Abraham had faith in God's promises and Abraham acted on God's promises. We need to understand that God's promises are not ultimately for this life. Sarah's is the first death among those who, according to Hebrews 11.13, died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Sarah was the, the first to die. And then in two chapters, Abraham is going to join her. And after that, Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Leah are going to be buried in this place as well. At the end of Genesis, we, we see Joseph taking the remains of Jacob back to Canaan, back to the cave of Machpelah to bury his father. And Joseph, too, requested that, that on, his, on his deathbed that his remains would not be left in Egypt, but they would be brought back to the Promised Land. Now, his remains aren't there. They're actually in, in Shechem. Well, Calvin explains that, that while they, the patriarchs themselves, were silent, the sepulcher cried aloud that death formed no obstacle to their entering on the possession of it. So with the laying of their bones in Canaan, the patriarchs gave final testimony to God's promise. God's people act on God's promises. Again, Hebrews 11 is, is informative. I want to read verses 9 and 10 and, and verse 16. By faith, he, Abraham, went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. In verse 16, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to, call, to, be, their, to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. During Abraham's life, he was a sojourner in the land, but through death, he occupied the land. Jesus explains to the Sadducees in Mark 12, verses 26 and 27, that, that God is the God of, of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that the God is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Again, the promises of God are ultimately for the life to come. Gerhard von Rad says that, that an ind indirect prophetic moment is especially clear as in all patriarchal stories, namely the foreshadowing of future benefits of salvation. He says the chapter contains a preview of our own future relationship to the saving benefit promised to us, the new life in Christ 
and to which we also bear. These all died not having received the promises. They died in faith. So for the believer, death is an opportunity to demonstrate the hope that we have. It's the opportunity to act on that hope. If the Lord tarries, the day will come when we will put our loved ones into the ground. Or we ourselves will go into the ground. But we will not remain there. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, that with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Death is the theme of this passage, but it is also the occasion for hope in God's promises and for acting on those promises. Through death, we inherit the promises of God. With this, the purchase of this land, Abraham gained a foothold in the promised land. But brothers and sisters, the land that we are promised is infinitely better than that earthly land. And we have something infinitely better than a foothold. Christ, our captain, has purchased the promised land for us. He has won heaven for us. In 1 Corinthians 15, 19-21, we read, But if in Christ we hope, for life, we hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has risen from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Abraham was trusting in the promises of God, not only for his lifetime. Abraham knew that, as Alan Ross says, that God would do far more for him in the future than he had done for him in this life, which is the hope of all who die in faith. Is this your hope? If this is your hope, you do not need to fear even death. After the death of, of John Chow, um, uh, Tim Challies shared a poem on his, on his blog, but it was written by E.H. Hamilton, a missionary to China. And this was written in response to the death of another missionary, J.W. Vinson. The poem goes like this. He says, Afraid of what? To feel the Spirit's glad release? To pass from pain to perfect peace? To strive and strain of life to cease? Afraid of that? Afraid of what? Afraid to see the Savior's face, to hear his welcome, and to trace the glory gleam from wounds of grace. Afraid of that? Afraid of what? A flash, a crash, a pierced heart, brief darkness, light, O oh heaven's art. A wound of his a counterpart. Afraid of that? Afraid of what? Enter into heaven's rest, and yet to serve the master blessed. From service good to service best. Afraid of that? Afraid of what? To abide, to do by death what life could not. Baptize with blood a stony plot. Till souls shall blossom from the spot. Afraid of that? Friends, we don't need to fear death. We don't need to fear death for ourselves if we're trusting in Christ. 
We don't need to fear death for our loved ones who are trusting in Christ. But we don't even need to fear death for those who are not trusting in Christ because we trust that God is just. And that on that day, we will understand God's justice. We pray and we, we, we earnestly share the gospel with those who have not yet turned to Christ that they might repent and find life in Him. But if they die, as all must die, we trust that God is still sovereign, that He is a just judge. We don't need to fear death. Like Sarah, like Abraham, like Isaac and Rebekah, like Jacob and Leah, like Rebecca, like Joseph and, and countless other Christians who have come before us, we, like them, are seeking a better country, a heavenly one. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Let's pray. Almighty God, when we begin to understand the frailty of life, Lord, that one day our life on earth will end. Lord, through the work of your Spirit, it causes us to lean on you, to cling to you, to trust in you who never change. To look to our Savior, Jesus Christ, who though he died, was raised on the third day, victorious over death, victorious over sin, victorious over the devil, victorious over hell. And we praise you, Almighty God, that for those who believe and have, are trusting in Christ, that his victory is our victory. Lord, we trust that, that your promises are in Christ, yes and amen. And we trust, Lord, that your promises will never fail, that not even death can keep you from fulfilling your promises to us. For it is through the death of Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God, that we inherit these promises. We look forward to going to being with him for all eternity on that day. Lord, I pray that through the power of your spirit, you will help us to remember these things, to remember the frailty of life and look to you, the unchanging, omniscient, omnipotent God. Help us to rest in you as we will for all eternity. Amen.